Well, I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. We continue on in our study through the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 1, and we're looking this morning at verses 18 down through the end of the chapter, down to verse 32, and you'll find that on page 939 if you're using the church Bible. Romans 1, 18 to 32, and as usual, you'll find it helpful to have your own copy open, reading along with me this morning. And before we do come to God's word, let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it, that his spirit would be here at work in your hearts and my heart, blessing the preaching and receiving of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would do what only you can do as we give our minds and our hearts to the scriptures. We pray as we lean in and look into your word that you would open our ears, that you would make us moldable, that you, the great potter, would form us and mold us into vessels of mercy that you have prepared for glory. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would remove dullness and blindness and enmity and hostility, that you would do a great work of redemptive grace this morning. We pray that your redemption would flow and that your mercy would flow, O God, far as the curse is found. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18 there, the Apostle Paul is continuing what he set out in verses 16 and 17 when he said that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, that the imputed righteousness of God, that what he demands, he provides in the gospel. And Paul's not ashamed of that gospel. And now Paul, in verse 18, begins to unfold the need for the gospel. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. 
Well, when I was a young Christian in Greenville, South Carolina, I remember driving by the many billboards that people would put up. Some of them would be things God didn't say attributed to God. Those were my least favorite ones. And then there would be others that would have a simple gospel verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, a beautiful verse, a wonderful verse. But as I got into the scriptures and As God had brought me out of darkness into light and I began to study the scripture and to realize that in order to understand the gospel, you have to understand the bad news. In order to get the good news, you have to get the bad news. I wondered what what it would be like if instead of God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son on a billboard, we would read the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. I'm sure the response it would elicit would be uh, less than charitable. I'm sure all of the vitriolic bloggers and news anchor people and all of your neighbors and all of my neighbors would come out with opinions about that billboard. In fact, something similar happened in England a number of years back. Uh, InterVarsity group at a college campus had decided to do a little different tactic in their evangelism. And so instead of giving out a gospel tract, they took the passage we have before us and they removed all the chapter verses and they put it in a different font and they put it on a, a printout and they didn't say that it was Romans 1 and they started giving them out. What well, wasn't long before some of the deans of the university there in England called the the group together and they said, you can't do this. This is malicious. This is bigoted. We want to know who wrote this. We want to know who authored this, which showed that, as Sinclair Ferguson said, that even those who think they know so much oftentimes don't know anything as they ought to. And yet, And yet, as we come to this very difficult passage, we realize very quickly in the book of Romans that we can't take one step forward in understanding our need for the gospel until we get what Paul says in Romans 1, 18 through the end of the chapter. This is actually the first step in Paul explaining the need for the gospel. He started, notice in verse 16, with the good news. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation for everybody who believes, the Jew first, also for the Greek, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness to everybody who believes. If you believe in Jesus, you're righteous before God, right standing forever. You'll never be any less or more justified than you are now if you believe in Jesus. That's great news. That's unbelievable news. But Paul will now juxtapose a second revelation. Notice, Notice that in verse 17 he says, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then in verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed. The reason why we need the righteousness of God is because the wrath of God is already revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, this morning we're going to look at two things as we consider that first need for the gospel. And the first thing we're going to consider is is why the, why the wrath of God is revealed, why the apostle says the wrath of God is revealed. And then secondly, we're going to consider how the wrath of God is said to be revealed, why the wrath of God is revealed, how the wrath of God is revealed. Now notice here in verse 18 that Paul links everything there with that four to what's just gone before. And when he begins to tell us why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, he tells us really four things. He tells us first that the truth of God is suppressed The glory of God is exchanged, the image of God is defaced, and the justice of God is denied. If you think it's unfair to talk about the wrath of God, let me tell you this. God's truth has been suppressed in your heart. 
His glory has been exchanged in your mind and worship. His image has been defaced in your person. And his justice has been denied in your actions and approvals. And notice as we go through there, the the truth of God suppressed. Paul opens up and he says there in verse 18 that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's the great problem of men. Moral, Moral wickedness. Everything that's contrary to God, that's what we are. We are everything by nature contrary to God. We are unrighteous. And notice that Paul tells us that is inexorably linked to the fact that men by nature suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold it back. They hold it back. They say the truth is always there, always around them. God holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways. And man by nature says, no, I don't want the truth pursuing me. And they hold it back in unrighteous living. And by nature, all men do this. Paul is going to actually climax, and he's going to say in chapter 3, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, there is none righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. All have suppressed the truth. And so Paul would have us know that man's fundamental problem and why the wrath of God is coming is because man, by nature, fallen in Adam, does not like truth. And if you took a red pen and you went through this passage, you would see that there's several intimations where this comes up over and over again, where it actually says that men have loved a lie, that men have loved wickedness and philosophy and worship. Why are there so many religions? Why are there so many opinions? Because men by nature love lies. They will love and believe any lie that's presented to them, and they will hold back the truth by nature. And it's sobering when we think about this, It's sobering to think that, you know, we live in a world of lies. Most things around us are untruth. Our environment is a world of untruth. Um, I'll attempt to answer the question for you, if God is a God of truth, then why does he allow a world of truth by the end of this sermon? But what we have to come to terms with first is that God's wrath, and it's not a It's not sort of like your wrath, where you fly off the handle because you get angry about something. It is a just recompense against evil. It is God's necessary response of a just and holy God against all evil because his truth has been, his truth has been suppressed, his truth has been perverted. And notice that the Apostle Paul says in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And so men are everywhere ready in their minds to latch on to something false. I don't know that God's really like that. Here's what I think about God. Yeah, I have a hard time with God saying God's like that. And that every time that is uttered from the mouth of someone, that is men showing you what the Apostle Paul is saying. And one of the main reasons why God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The second reason that he gives, and really this permeates the text, is that the glory of God is exchanged. Really, the greatest problem is that man exchanged the glory of God. Man's fundamental problem is that he gave up the glory. He gave up the glory of God. He doesn't bring God glory. He doesn't live in light of God's glory. He's not satisfied by God. Fundamentally, man has a worship problem. It was D.A. Carson, I think, that said... We worshiped our way into sin, and we can only worship our way out. We worship our way into sin, 
we must worship our way out. Man's fundamental problem is that he exchanged the glory of God. And notice what Paul says. He says in verse 23, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I want you to think about this language with me. The language of idolatry here in Romans 1, while probably in some way related to the Greek mythology that Paul was um, encountering as he went city to city and into the Roman Empire and into Rome itself, is true in every way. And what man does by nature, and this is so important that we get, man gives up the glory of the God who created all things, who is himself glorious and perfect and beautiful and infinitely holy and just and wise and good, and they exchange his glory, and they won't give him glory, but they'll give it to animals and things that are close to the place from which they came. I don't know if you ever thought about this. The language Paul uses here of worshiping the creature, four-footed things, beast, birds. goes back to Genesis 1. goes back to creation. And man, in a sense, fallen in Adam, now looks over creation. And instead of going back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They look at the created things. And having come out of that ground, they, they become base in what they do. They give up the glory of God and they worship created things. They worship people. People worship their spouses, they worship their jobs, they worship music, they worship actors and actresses, they worship themselves. And really fundamental to this problem, and I think Paul is going to come to this when he talks about the image of God defaced, is that they get to such a place of self-love that everything about them is base and earthly, and that is a manifestation that they have given up the glory of God. They have exchanged the glory of God, and so God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all those who have exchanged his glory to worship created things. That's a just recompense. God's wrath is against those who worship the very things God made. That's the height of idolatry. And that's true of every one of us by nature. Every one of us by nature is in Romans 1. I have been in Romans 1 through many, many, many days of my life. You have been in Romans 1 through many days of your life. And so Paul would have us take seriously what he says about the truth of God suppressed, the glory of God exchanged, and then notice he moves into that that very uncomfortable for many people sections and yet important sections about sexual immorality. The image of God is defaced. Not only does man suppress the truth intellectually and in unrighteousness, not only does man exchange God's glory for created things, but man becomes so idolatrous that it manifests itself in the greatest way in sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is the greatest manifestation of idolatry. If you want to know whether someone is worshiping the creatures, you look at how they live sexually in the world. And ultimately, when, when man is let go, and we'll actually turned over, which we'll come to in a minute, when he is let go to do what he wants and to pursue what he wants in that sphere, that the ultimate manifestation is you even pursue people just like you. You pursue people just like you, and your manhood becomes undone, and your womanhood becomes undone. You've given up the glory of God. When the glory departs, your manhood departs, and your womanhood departs. That's what Paul's saying. There's a psychology here. I don't care 
if the world hates this. In fact, the world approving this is just proof of what Paul says at the end, that though men know the righteous decree of God, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do it, but they approve of those who do it. They tell others, this is good, this is right, it's okay. I do this, you need to be what you are. Um, Ferguson, very helpfully, I think, pointed out that not only will men and women, because the image of God has been so marred in them, approve it in others, but that they will even promote it among others that haven't even entered into it yet. So you have a young person who is struggling with self-identification, and they'll say, oh, you're gay. Come out of the closet. You're gay. It's good. Be what you are. Be unashamed about it. And Paul says that the image of God is so defaced. And it's not just in the sexual sin. Notice, it'd be very easy, actually, for you and I to sit here and to look at a passage like this and say, well, I've never done that. I've never been there. I'm not at that place. Uh, Yes, I've done some wrong things, but I'm not that person. And so the Apostle Paul gives us this catalog of how the image of God has been defaced in us. And notice, when you come there to verse 28, We're told in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, if you took that list and you inverted that catalog and said what would be the converse of all those things... Instead of covetousness, contentment. Instead of unthankfulness, thankfulness to God. Instead of disobedience to parents, obedience to parents. And if you went down the line and one by one you inverted that catalog, you would have a picture of what the image of God is supposed to look like. What you are supposed to look like in the world in sexual purity, in moral holiness. And all of us have been so marred in the fall that the Apostle Paul says this is a adequate description. The truth of God suppressed, the glory of God exchanged, the image of God defaced, the justice of God denied. And ultimately, and that's where this leads, God's wrath is revealed from heaven because his, the very thing that is now revealed from heaven is the very thing that people deny. The very thing that is coming against all unrighteousness is the very thing that people hate more than anything else. Notice Paul says there at the end, though they know the righteous decree of God that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Let me say this. Romans 1, 18 to 32 was not given out by the Apostle Paul atomistically, apart from any other context. The point of why Paul is telling you this is because Paul wanted men and women to see their need for the righteous revelation of God. Unless we know the revelation of God's wrath, we will never cry out for the revelation of his righteousness. Until we see ourselves in Romans 1, 18 through 32, we will never have what Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And so there's a necessary correlation. I want to read this to you. Thomas Robinson, an old theologian, wrote, Righteousness condemning prepares for righteousness justifying. It's one of my favorite quotes. Righteousness condemning prepares for righteousness justifying. 
The wrath-revealing law prepares for the peace-revealing gospel. The clearest revelation of wrath accompanies the revelation of grace. Wrath is revealed to show the need of salvation and to urge men to seek it. Both revelations are counterparts of each other. The revelation of God's wrath is an evidence for the gospel. The revelation of God's wrath in these verses is an evidence for the gospel. Um, I had an interesting conversation with a friend this week who told me, that he has a coworker who was telling him how they had cheated on their spouse many times, kind of bragging about all their uh, sexual exploits. And, um, and my friend finally said to this person, I thought you went to this, this big church. This person said, oh, I do. Yeah, I love it. And he said, how can you sit there and tell me of all these, these exploits and all of this perversion and immorality and uncleanness and tell me you love your church. And, and this person said, it just fits my lifestyle right now. This church fits my lifestyle. What Paul says in this verse should make you unbelievably uncomfortable. Should make you unbelievably uncomfortable in the right way. If you hear this and you say, oh, that's interesting. It's a very bad place to be. If you hear this and you say, I don't like that. Okay, maybe God's working on you. If you hear this and you say, I know that that's what I'm like and that's why I need Jesus Christ. That is the best place in the world to be. You have moved from wrath to mercy. It is all mercy and grace for you. If you have already found yourself in these verses, been crushed by them, been convicted by them, been driven into the arms of Jesus. Now, let me say this. Secondly, How is the wrath of God revealed in these verses? Because you might think what Paul's saying is that the wrath of God is going to be revealed. You might think he's saying it's going to be revealed on judgment day. There's going to be a judgment day. All the nations are going to be gathered before the Lord. Everybody's going to give an account of everything done in their bodies, whether what they did was good or evil. And God is going to pronounce judgment on those in Christ, salvation on those out of Christ, damnation, eternal condemnation. And that's true. And the Bible teaches that. But Romans 1.18 doesn't teach that. Romans 1.18 does not say the wrath of God will be revealed. It says the wrath of God is presently revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And so that opens the question. What does he mean the wrath of God is revealed? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I think he tells us very clearly. He tells us four more things. Number one, he says that God's wrath is revealed in men and women having their minds blinded. A blinded mind, a darkened mind, is a revelation of God's wrath. Men don't like the truth, and so God says, okay, I will make you hate it even more. I will blind your mind. Jesus said this. Jesus, quoting Isaiah, says that he has blinded the hearts and the minds of those who hate the truth, who don't want the truth. There is a judicial hardening. There is a giving over to blindness and futility and foolishness and darkening of heart. That's the first thing the Apostle Paul says. He says the wrath of God is revealed in, notice there, in verse, um, in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They were darkened. Wrath revealed. Passive wrath. They were darkened. When men have darkened minds, It's not, they're just not on the right track. They didn't have the right upbringing as me. God's wrath is revealed. 
And if I am the only person that ever tells you that, praise God, he brought you here to hear that. Number two, the Apostle Paul says men and women worshiping animals and created things is a revelation of God's wrath. Down the line, when men exchange the glory of God for created things, animals, beasts, four-footed animals, people, status, things, God gives them over to that so that those things are in themselves a, a manifestation of God's wrath in their life. They are, they are blinded even more, and they, their whole life becomes consumed with that. I'll never forget my dad telling me, as we talked through a passage like this many years ago, um, about um, many um, Hindus he's known in his life. And he said, you know, Nick... Um, Many of the Hindus in India are some of the most brilliant people in the world. Triple PhDs. Some of the most wonderful minds on the planet. And they will give their food to a rat before they eat it. They will. You can look that up. If you worship animals, if you worship created things and idols, God is giving you over so that even that is a manifestation of his wrath, a further giving you over so that you end up serving created things. That's not a manifestation of God's grace. That is a manifestation of his wrath. Thirdly, and this is the most clear in the text, God's wrath is manifested when men and women are abandoned to the uncleanness of sexual immorality. Notice, notice this, notice verse 24. I want you to look at three verses quickly here. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. Look at the beginnings of those three verses. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Now, let me say this. God is not giving men and women up so that they sin. He's giving them up to more sin because they are already living in it. It is the just consequence of men and women wanting perversity in their life. This is the most helpful quote in this whole section to me. Gerhardus Voss talking about God giving men up, giving them up. By the way, we have no weak God. I want you to know that. You may have weak thoughts of God, but the Apostle Paul says even the sexual immorality in the world is God's sovereign wrath revelation. God sovereignly, actively gave them up. God gave them up. And Gerhardus Voss says this, the scriptural law of sin being punished by irretrievable abandonment to sin is found in this passage. This is the scriptural law of sin being punished by irretrievable abandonment to sin. That's what's being taught. That Listen, people, people love, people love to, to talk about what's going to happen when we die and what's it going to be like and, you know, will it really be like this and this? And, and most Christians are professedly going to say there is a day of judgment coming. There's wrath coming. But most Christians... Don't want to think about God as a God of wrath in the here and now. They don't want to think that he hates anyone. 
They don't want to think that he is doing anything just in the here and now. And yet the Apostle Paul says, even men being given over to more sexual impurity and uncleanness and debauchery and more of the image of God being marred is a manifestation of that wrath here and now. Now, let me say this. If you think this is harsh, again, we are all in this chapter by nature. To some extent or another, our lives manifest this. Every one of us, the nicest person in here, the sweetest person in here, and there's some sweet people in here and nice people in here, not so nice people in here. Maybe I'm just talking about myself. But let me say this. Every one of us falls in here. Every one of us falls in here. And that means several things. That means that we ought to be crying out to God not to give us over to our evil desires. I have many times been on my knees after committing some sin in my mind or heart and saying, Lord, do not give me over. Do not give me over to this. That's one of the sweetest prayers you could ever pray to God. Do not give me over to this. Because at the end of the day, the worst thing The worst thing that could ever happen, the most frightening thing, C.S. Lewis said this, the most frightening thing in the universe is that there are some who, in the end, God is going to say, thy will be done. God is going to say to some at the end, thy will be done. You wanted it, you got it. You wanted perversion, you got it. You want to lie, you got it. You want to suppress the truth and forsake my glory, You got it. Thy will be done. It's the most frightening thing in the universe. And so we should be people who should be humbled under this, who should be examining our own hearts, should be going to the Lord and pleading with God not to let us fall into this in our Christian lives, not just in our unregenerate lives. If you're unregenerate, if you've never come to Jesus, this passage is to drive you into the arms of Jesus. Interesting. And I think I I really want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with the sweetness. I want to leave you with the sweetness. Because this is heavy. This is heavy so that you get the sweetness. Man's greatest problem is worshiping the creature. That's what Paul says, idolatry. It's a worship issue. Everybody's worshiping something. Isn't that interesting? Even when they give up, the worship of God, they don't want to so get rid of the idea of God that they will give his glory to created things. They're still going to worship. Everybody worships something. I've had a man in this community tell me he goes out on the water with his boys on Sunday and he worships. Just being honest. Just telling you what Paul says. Everybody worships. By nature, we worship created things. I want you to think about this. Our great problem is that our hearts are bent away from God toward creation. And so what does God do to solve that? God creates a human nature for himself. He becomes man. He says, worship me. And then that human nature is nailed to the cross. And the sin of our idolatry is placed on it. And God obliterates our sin and idolatry by breaking apart the body of Jesus on the cross. And then he rises from the dead, and the man, Christ Jesus, the God-man, receives worship after his resurrection. Have you ever thought about that? They worshiped a man. That may sound blasphemous 
It's biblical. They worshiped a man. And, and let me say this. God, in part, solves our idolatry problem by becoming a human being and saying, worship me. I have dealt with your sin at the cross. Come to me. Look to me. And interestingly, if you think all the idolatry is solved the second you're converted, think again, because the Apostle John, in 1 John, opens the book by telling you all about Jesus, that the word became flesh, that he was manifested, the life, the two natures of Jesus. And he ends the book and he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Writing to the church. So Jesus is the God man. Keep yourselves from idols. And then that same John, that same apostle, in the book of Revelation twice, falls down to worship an angel. So if you think you can't slide back in here, You are very foolish, but here's the good news. Here's the sweetness. Jesus has dealt with everything. He was perfectly righteous. The only person, the only descendant of Adam that doesn't fit in Romans 1, 18 through 32 is Jesus. That's where Paul's going to go in in Romans 3, 20. He's going to say, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the second Adam, that he kept the law perfectly, that everything inverted in here, he was perfectly pure and holy. The image of God was blameless in him. He always worshiped God. He always gave his father glory. He loved the truth and spoke the truth. He said, I am the truth. And then that Jesus says to men and women like us in here, come to me, I'll deal with your idolatry. I'll take your sexual immorality. I'll take all of your sin on myself. I will remove it as far as the east is from the west. I will wash it away in my blood. I will give you a new heart and a new mind. I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will make you clean. I will make you love righteousness and holiness and justice and beauty and goodness and God's glory. I will do all of that in you. I will unite myself to you. And you know what? You're still going to struggle and you're still going to want to worship created things. And I don't think anybody here is in danger of worshiping Buddhas. I don't think but you're worshiping something. And if it's not God, if you're not worshiping God perfectly, you're worshiping something else in his place. And Jesus essentially says, I will continue to heal you and I will continue to bring you into the presence of God the Father. I will continue to make you a worshiper. I will continue my saving grace and mercy in you. So much so, turn to Romans 5. I'm going to read this and then we're going to close because you've got to get this. If you get Romans 1 and all the hard things there, you've got to get Romans 5. Romans 5, Paul is explaining what Jesus did to heal us of our idolatry and our wickedness in Romans 1. And I'm going to read this, and then we're going to close. Verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for good people. He didn't die for people that think they can fix themselves up. At the right time, he died for the ungodly. Scarcely somebody would die for a righteous person. Maybe somebody would die for a good person. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now listen to this. Verse 9. This is the big one. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, since we have now been justified By his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 118, the wrath of God is revealed. 59, since we've been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath to come through him. That's, That's how it fits together. 
That's how it all fits together. I hope it fits together for you. If this is new to you, if this is hard to hear, I understand that. I hope that you'll consider how God is giving you this to tell you this is the world in which we live, fallen and broken and rebellious and perverted and warped and lie-loving, and here's what I've done to cure it. I've entered into that world. I've died on the cross. I justify my people with my blood. I give them my righteousness. I make them my own. Why would we not glory? Why would we not glory to know how much God has done for us against the darkness of that background? I hope that you're trusting in Jesus Christ for righteousness, that you're acknowledging what you've been, that you're looking to him in faith, that you're growing as you seek to destroy the idols in your life by keeping your eyes fixed on him and worshiping him. I want to quote Carson as we close. We worship our way into sin, and we worship our way out. We worshiped our way into sin, and we worship our way out. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty truths, and yet they are truths that we need. We pray that you would take them and sanctify them to us, that you would open our eyes to see that this is indeed the world in which we live, and this is indeed what we have been. Lord, we have all, like sheep, gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, and so we thank you that you have laid on your Son the iniquity of us all. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have justified us with your blood. We thank you that you will save us from the wrath to come. We thank you that we are safe in you and that we are redeemed and healed by you. Heal us in a more deeper and profound sense, we pray. We pray these things in your name. Amen.